Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic today on the show. We've got a good friend of the program and a special guest. It's Drake UU. He is a former scout executive. Kind of did a lot of different things with the Sacramento Kings and the Stockton Kings uh, over the course of what, five years, Drake? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, five and a half years, yep. Yeah, so Drake is here. We're going to talk NBA playoffs. We're going to talk uh, a little bit of everything that's happening across the league. Uh, but first, Drake, how you doing, man? I'm great, man. I'm excited to catch up. Uh, we have a lot of these conversations. Uh, we've had a lot of these conversations over the uh, the years, and so it's cool to hit record and catch up uh, and do a podcast. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, man. So for people who don't know kind of who you are and like how you ended up with the Sacramento Kings and everything. Just give like kind of a, give a quick overview for the people on like kind of where, where you come from, how you're kind of Sacramento born and bred. And then uh, you end up working for the hometown team for a while uh, after kind of a, a, a storied professional career as an NBL champion. <laughs> well, thank you for making me sound a lot cooler than I actually am. But um <laughs> Yeah, I'm born and raised in Sacramento. Um, grew up a huge Kings fan uh, in the heydays with Peja, Vladi, Chris Weber, Mike Bibby. Um, well, it's great because because you get to, you got to work with those guys for a while too. Totally that that, that interview experience was surreal in itself. I was like <laughs> freaking out. Uh, you know, a couple childhood uh, celebrities in my mind. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was pretty wild. But uh, yeah, grew up in Sacramento. Uh, huge Kings fan. Um, they kind of, that's, that team, those teams were, you know, from 2000 to 2005 or like the, I feel like they're what really shaped my love for the game. Um, but yeah, I ended up playing in high school, played in college. Uh, I ended up graduating from Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Um, and then from there, I wanted to keep playing and, uh, landed in Perth, Australia. So, uh, pretty cool experience. Pretty cool. I'm understating it. Australia was amazing. Uh, <laughs> living in living in the beach, English speaking country. Uh, it's summertime during the basketball season there. Uh, the Perth Wildcats organization is first class, and um, ironically, ended up playing against or playing on the same team as a guy that I played against in college, and James Ennis, uh, my rookie year, won a championship. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, a total blessing uh, from start to finish. And from there, I actually had a, I, I had originally signed a three-year deal with Perth. I opted out with a player option because I was hoping to get some more opportunity with a different NBL club. And so, like, the whole way that the Kings uh, door opened was completely out of the blue. Um, got a call that w- from a mutual friend with Vladi, who had just taken the job at the time, um, asking if I could come in an interview with Vladi tomorrow. <laughs> I thought this was a joke. So I said, of course, dropped everything I was doing. I was, this was August. So I was literally getting ready to head back to Australia in like a couple of weeks and interviewed with Vladi and Peja, who both came in, were super down to earth. The conversation went really well. And, uh, they told me eventually they're like, well, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. And so I, messaged my buddy and I'm like, Hey, I kind of need to make a decision whether I'm going to go back to Australia or I kind of like to see this through before, you know, making this call. And Vladi called me that night and uh, offered the the offer letter was there. And I just quickly decided to pivot and hang up my basketball shoes and kind of dive into uh, a role in the front office. And so 
spent five and a half years with the Kings. Uh, incredible experience. Uh, wouldn't take anything back. It was a dream job for me working, uh, you know, growing up, like I said, as a Kings fan and then being able to work with, uh, you know, Vlad- guys like Vladimir Peja who uh, are amazing humans and grew up a huge fan, obviously. So I was fanboying for the last five and a half years, <laughs> essentially. Um, and here we are. <laughs> it's amazing, though. It's like just an unreal story and then uh unfortunately you know obviously you got you got let go and the changeover which happens to front office people uh all the time and you've been just doing a little bit of scouting on the side and uh kind of kind of hanging out and doing your thing in sacramento so i'm i'm glad that the king's loss is the game theory podcast game <laughs> one man's trash is another man's treasure that's right Sam. thank you <laughs> so Let's jump in and talk about the NBA and talk a little bit about this Clippers-Mavs game that happened earlier today. So the Clippers uh, end up knocking out the Mavs after being down 2-0, being down 3-2 in this series. And I, I don't think I'm surprised because this Mavericks team, just looking at how that roster has been built, I'm not really a fan of it, right? Uh, it, Tim Hardaway Jr. was their second best player this year. Uh, Christoph Porzingis just does not look to be back from the litany of injuries that he's unfortunately had to deal with over the course of his career. And like Dorian Finney-Smith was arguably more valuable than Christoph's was this year, despite the fact that Christoph's averaged like 20 and 8. So I'm not surprised that the Mavs couldn't keep it together for a game seven but man, it was a fun ride in this entire series. And man, it was a fun ride in game seven because that was a roller coaster watching Luca kind of go off uh, through the first quarter and first half. Unreal. I mean, but did he finish with 29 at half? I think he was yeah. virtually unguardable this entire series. Um, and it's crazy to see him take another step. Every, I mean, last year we saw in the playoffs too at the bubble. I feel like when the lights are on and he just takes his game to another level, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah. He's kind of always been like that too. Uh, the, the number that I've been kind of showing on Twitter, I guess, or tweeting out is that, you know, he has five games out of 13 playoff games. Now where he has 40 points and nine assists, including today, he did it again. I think he had like 42 and 13 or 14 or something, uh, which are just like literal video game numbers. Uh, he's one of now three players in NBA history to do that. Like LeBron, I think has done it nine times in like 180 NBA playoff games or whatever. Uh, It's what Luca is doing is not normal. Like Dallas has the hard part done. Finding that guy is the hard part. I mean, you guys spent five and a half years in Sacramento trying to find that guy and you didn't. And now this guy is here and Dallas has the tough part done. It's building around that guy that's going to be the hard part, and we'll have to we'll see where it goes, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, I feel like uh, I mean, trust me, I hear a lot about Luca from <laughs> enough of my friends um, I, over the years. I, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> want to say it. You know what I mean? Uh, I was just gonna. I was gonna let you bring it up if you wanted to. <laughs> I, I would love to. I hate. You know, uh, building in a draft is incredibly hard, and uh, we were <laughs> clearly we were wrong, but. Uh, Luca is a special generational talent. Uh, it's just I'm trying to figure out what what their next step is. I mean, Porzingis is clearly supposed to be the number two guy. Um, I feel like you kind of need to. Is it shooting? Is it you just need to surround him with knockdown guys and 
maybe another playmaker. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that they need. They need a second guy who can be just instant offense, right? Because Kristaps can't really create his own shot. He's never been a post creator. He's never been, uh, you know, he's been like kind of a mid post guy. You could throw the ball to, and maybe he can hit a fadeaway or just like, honestly, that shot where he has the high release point and just ends up, uh, shooting over the top of a guy that's like six foot 10 or shorter. But I'm, I'm of the mind that the first thing they need to go out and find is a secondary playmaker or even a primary guy that can take some, you know, uh, some of the burden off of Luca. Like, I've seen a couple people bring up the Kemba Walker for Kristaps Porzingis potential move. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was Boston, I would never do that. I just want to make that abundantly clear. Uh, I, I would rather have Kemba for two years than Porzingis for three. I understand why people would bring that up because Boston has a theoretical need at center. But I think they're probably just going to ride with Robert Williams and see where that goes or maybe take a guy at 16 as opposed to to that i mean they could look to get rid of kemba but the whole point of getting rid of kemba would be to like kind of be able to reset with a different cap situation in a year i think as opposed to replacing him with another highly paid underperforming star right 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 totally so if you're dallas i think primary playmaker first and foremost and then I liked the Josh Richardson move in a vacuum because it was like kind of shooting and defense, but it was just terrible. It didn't work. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Like, I, I would I, like my initial thing is playmaking and shooting defense, like two way players, kind of like in the Dorian Finney Smith role. But they tried that yeah, last totally. year and it failed. Like, what do we? What are we thinking for Dallas? I think you're 100 percent right. Like the uh, the secondary ball handler playmaker has to. I don't know where they find that necessarily, but taking some pressure off of Luca, um, and then yeah, surrounding him. I guess like some combination of shooters and dogs. <laughs> like yeah, uh, and that's kind of what you kind of have in Finney Smith. Um, and, and I actually I'm a Jalen Brunson fan. Uh, he's he's been pretty solid for them. I think the last couple of years and. Uh, you know, he's, he brings some toughness, but I think you need someone that can like really uh, take the pressure off of Luca from a playmaking standpoint. Um, so I'm I'm super curious. I mean, Porzingis is making what 31 next year, 33 the year after that, and he has a 36 million dollars in 23, 24. That's, that's a lot it's of a, money. It's yeah. a wild amount of money. I feel like uh, for him, unfortunately, but they have some real cap space this summer too. Uh, I'm. You know, that, that cap space does drop if they decide to try and hold on to Tim Hardaway Jr. and his $28 million cap hold, right? Um, you know, I'm, I don't I don't know this. I, I'm assuming Josh Richardson probably opts out of that $11 million. Uh, mm. He could at least, I would think, get at least like eight or nine on the open market. Like maybe, if, maybe he doesn't get the full 11, but he can get eight or nine on a longer term deal. Yep, yep. Or like, would he rather yeah. just take that one and then try to like try to run it back and see how next year goes to re-enter the market? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he played six minutes today, <laughs> took one shot. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it's uh, if he's not feeling the fit or if they don't really necessarily see him. I, I don't know. You're right. Maybe he uh, he opts out and tries to get in a better situation for himself. But interesting. Yeah, and. So they're, let's say they even have to do that $28 million cap hold on Tim Hardaway. So that, that takes them up to like 101 guaranteed. Josh Richardson gets them 
up past like the salary cap, which is projected at 112 next year. So this is a team that, depending on what Josh Richardson does, and then depending on what they decide to do with Tim Hardaway Jr., they're going to be keeping their options open, I think, first and foremost. And then kind of secondly, I think that they need to just look on the market and see if they can could, could you potentially go out and try and get like a Lonzo Ball? Like do we think Lonzo's a good enough secondary creator next to Luca or is he just going to cause more of the same issues for them in the half court because he's not a great half court creator I feel like. Right, right. It's an interesting, yeah. I don't know. I feel like uh Lonzo has improved as a shooter. Um that, that's actually not bad. I mean and I wouldn't necessarily – is Lonzo like a great half-court creator, like you said? Like he's more of a kick-ahead, great in transition. I don't know if – I don't know. It's an interesting name for sure. The other name I've seen is DeMar DeRozan, but he isn't the shooter spacer. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I, and he's kind of like – the ball kind of sticks with him at times. I don't know if he's that – yeah. Yeah, like I, I don't – either. I, <laughs> I don't think you'd want Luca next to a guy where the ball gets sticky in their hands, like with DeMar. Yeah. Listen, uh, I've always thought that uh, this is super round. Obviously I'm sacked biased, but maybe someone like buddy kind of in, uh, a, alongside Tim Hardaway. I mean, I don't know how the money works with that obviously, but, uh, I, I do think that the shooting to me, cause the ball is in his hand so much, he's trying to get downhill and you, once he's making plays, he can obviously pick defenses apart and just, kind of putting more shooting around him i think would help it's tricky i I don't know what dallas does clearly it sounds like they're not making a coaching change so yeah i think that the other one that i like that i haven't seen mentioned yet is spencer dinwiddie spencer again the ball does get a bit sticky with him and he's not an elite shooter but he's a good enough shooter to where i think that I don't think the price is going to be wild. Like, I think you're talking 15 million or so, maybe something yeah. like that. Um, and, and that's more the guy that I think makes sense for them. Something in like in the Dinwiddie mold who can shoot, who I think would probably take uh, a number two option as opposed DeMar took a number two option. I don't want to like, you know, say that DeMar didn't necessarily like he'd be comfortable with that. But I think that, Dinwiddie from a price perspective probably fits a little bit more and fills a few more holes for them maybe yeah, I like that a lot actually and, and Dinwiddie can play with the ball in his hands too and so you kind of yeah I guess now I'm thinking about it Tim Hardaway is solid off the dribble I feel like he can create his own shot but I, I think maybe that's a little more oh, I, I, that Dinwiddie comp or comp that Dinwiddie name is actually an interesting an interesting one for sure so where where do we think the the Clippers succeeded here? Kind of watching this game, like what what makes what was impressive about uh, the Clippers' performance for you today? Uh, Kawhi uh, to me is the one who kind of uh, elevated his game, took it upon himself to try and not switch as much on Luca. Um, he was just a, he was a beast today. I feel like uh, I'd kind of been waiting to see this, and after they went down o two. I feel like we started to kind of. I mean, look, he was ten for fifteen today. Got to the line, almost had a triple double, zero turnovers. I feel like, uh, you know, talk about a two way player. Uh, I feel like uh, his performance today was super impressive to me. And it's, yeah, I mean, and then on top of that, like the role players late and Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris just went nuts. And I feel like uh, 
that to me was the difference maker tonight was kind of those uh, third, fourth, fifth guys kind of stepping up. Trey Mann had – or not Trey Mann. <laughs> oh, yeah, Trey Mann. I'm getting confused now with draft guys. But, uh, yeah, Trey Mann I thought had great minutes. Uh, kind of – oh, and Luke Kennard even came in and uh, had it, played a major role late. And so I feel like uh, a lot of those role players today stepped up when they needed to, and they, at the end of it, got it done. Yeah, how, how good is uh, Terrence Mann? Trey, Trey Mann is the draft prospect, unfortunately. Um <laughs> It always happens. Wrong, yeah, yeah the, those stupid brain fades always happen. Uh, <laughs> Terrence Mann, like becoming a real NBA player, is like one of my favorite things because if you've ever talked to Terrence Mann, did you guys have him pre-draft last year? You know, we had him pre-draft, and we also went to Portsmouth and interviewed him. And yeah, awesome kid. Just like elite of the elite in terms of like yep. uh, character, like good person, all about the team. Like, did that kind of stuff stand out to you guys? hundred uh, percent all the intangibles that you want in a especially I mean you could see the maturity in the way that he kind of approached uh, the workout how he approached an interview um, and yeah I'm actually a huge Terrence Mann fan I mean, he's been his role has obviously increased this year he's taken advantage of his opportunity um, and he's become like a great utility role player for uh, LA and I think uh, you couldn't be happier for kids like kids like that you really love seeing them succeed yeah and with him it's like that ability to process the game like the big thing that I always talk about like on this podcast is I want guys that are quick at processing basketball and can make quick decisions and yeah. I think that with particularly Terrence Mann and Nick Batum they have found guys that are really good at that and then are also versatile and smart defenders. I would imagine that they end up playing a little bit bigger against the Jazz because I think it's just really hard to play without any size against Gobert because of how strong he is. But with that, with what they did against Luka and against Dallas, essentially guarding Porzingis with a small and then uh, yeah. you know guarding Boban with a small at times as well. Boban had 14 and 10, but if, uh, if Boban is beating you, I feel like that's a win for the Clippers totally. as opposed to yeah. uh, Luka or Tim Hardaway Jr. canning threes or you know Luka spraying the ball out for wide open threes. So, yeah, guys who can process the game quickly on both offense and defense, I feel like those are the two things that uh, are really the one thing that showcases itself on both ends that, uh, that, I, that I look for a lot in the draft process and look for in draft prospects. Totally. Where... Where do you fall on this Utah Clippers series? How, how do we think this is going to go? I actually think I have Utah coming out of the West. Um, have you had that the I'm whole really, the whole uh, playoffs? Uh, I think from the start of the playoffs, I had Utah. I feel like I've just been super impressed with uh, the maturity, the depth. Um, I feel like they they seem to really be clicking. Mike Conley is much more comfortable in his role this year. Um, I. I don't know. I'm, I am excited for the series, obviously, uh, but I think I have Utah still kind of prevailing. I feel like uh, they have set this great balance of uh, maturity, IQ. They have obviously a star in Donovan, and uh, I feel like they really, chemistry-wise, they really mesh well together. And uh, they pick defenses apart, and they have several. They, they hit you from a variety of different angles, and I, I don't know. I, I just don't know if. Uh, the Clippers can hang. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that people have been drastically underrating how good Utah is all season. Yeah. I mean, they are very 
Yeah, and Phoenix. And with Utah, I think that everyone just kind of waits for the shoe to drop because of the propensity to play drop coverage. And that seems to be everyone's kind of... um, you know, the thing that everyone hates right now, you can't play drop coverage in the playoffs. You can't uh, make it work at the end of the day. You know what, though? The Jazz, I feel like, know that better than anyone because they absolutely annihilate drop coverage, first and foremost, offensively. So right. it becomes really hard to play. The reason I think Utah is so good is it's really hard to play small against them because Rudy will destroy you on the glass if you do. And because, yeah, he doesn't post necessarily, but he does like roll and seal really well so that if you play a small on him, he's going to be able to just high point the ball and score on you pretty easily. But it's really hard to play truly big against them. Like Zubots is going to have all sorts of problems in the series because if you drop against them, they have so many a pull up shooters who are great. Donovan Mitchell, uh, Mike Conley, obviously Joe Ingles can kind of walk behind a screen and knock it down. Jordan Clarkson's very comfortable doing it. Um, Boyan's obviously very comfortable doing it as well. And all of those guys are also excellent catch and shoot guys. And Mike particularly, as well as Donovan and Boyan to an extent, uh, and certainly Joe, all of those guys are such good passers. They spray the ball so well out to those kickout guys. I think it's really, really hard to play big against them, but it's also hard to play small against them. It's kind of a, it's kind of a perfect storm of offensive skills without like a superstar player. Um, and that's why they're so good offensively and so difficult to deal with, right? Totally. Yeah. Uh, they pick you apart. They really do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they got great guard play. I love – I wasn't a huge Gobert fan. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. My, my thought pro- – my thought pro- sorry, my opinion of him has changed. I think uh, my opinion on rim protectors in general and, like, true bigs and size has changed uh, dramatically. And so – uh yeah, Utah is a really good team, and uh, I don't know. I mean, well, how, how is I, I your how is your uh, opinion of rim protectors changed? Like, what do you mean when you say that? Uh, I think looking at the bubble, and when you look at playoff teams, uh, I guess I I didn't value it as much as uh, I do now. I think that you know you look at the Jokic's, the Embiid's, the having true rim protection is kind of the anchor of your defense and um especially in a, in a game in today's game where you you know playing on the perimeter you can't touch a guy and so you have having someone that can like really uh alter shots or uh you know protect that rim i think is like super valuable and uh i kind of downplayed that i think uh, at times uh you know in my time with the kings as far as like my personal evaluation of players um i I think that it's just a much more valuable skill than i anticipated so yeah and it's interesting too because i kind of agreed with you like i almost would have always rather had like the bam at a bio for instance right or the switchable defensive center as opposed to like the true big that you're playing in a drop and then making it work uh but even just look at that clippers Mav series, I felt like a big part of it was the Mavericks adjustment back after game four, game four or game five, I can't remember, um, was to bring in Boban off the bench and kind of start him and play him a bunch of minutes and just play like 
super huge humans in the paint and basically making the Clippers play as a perimeter based team, which is something that um, they're very comfortable doing. And I think that they prefer it, but I think they prefer it to their detriment at times and where they got very dangerous in games three and four was the parade to the rim. So the way Dallas adjusted back was to go with super rim protection. I do think that, it's really important to be able to protect the rim. And that kind of goes with like, it's so intuitive to say that, but I feel like we did go away from it for a minute in the NBA and like over evaluating the ability to kind of just play and play in a variety of different pick and roll coverages. But, um, and I think that it's important to still be able to show teams different looks, right? It's important to be able to show different, just different ways of combating what the offense is going to do. You know, you should be able to play flat. You should be able to um, trap and try and force a turnover uh, and put two on the ball, right? You should be able to uh, drop and you should be able to switch, right? Like you need to do all of those things. That's what genuine NBA champions do. But I do think more and more that the best way to build a defense is probably uh, inside out at least in terms of raising the floor of your defense sure i yeah do you feel like because i know I'm, I'm kind of thinking in my own but dallas's situation with their bigs was actually super interesting and like you said that they obviously at the end of it decided to go with boban but i was always kind of curious like uh throughout the season they were going with willie collie stein they were going with dwight powell finney smith was playing some center with Uh, when Porzingis was out like they kind of and every one of those bigs has like obviously these different qualities and different uh skill sets and Mm -hmm. so what my question to you I guess is like what is your ultimate like taste or what would you like most out of your so what do you look for the most out of your centers I I think that now (laughs) I mean this is this is a ridiculous thing to say right but I feel like there are all these different kind of um kind of molds that centers and are built in now like the clint capella rim protection rim runner who is athletic and can switch a little bit but is probably a little bit better uh playing either flat or playing a drop coverage in defense there is the pure spacer like a porzingis right there is the space and rim protect which is what porzingis used to be uh such as miles turner there's the kind of ability to catch all and do everything right and then you have anthony davis like that I think I would want the guy who can, I think even more than shooting now, I want the guy who's comfortable with the ball in his hands and is good at rim protection, but also switchable defensively. Um, uh, Like the guy that stands out to me in this draft that is Evan Mobley, obviously, because he can just kind of do a lot of different things, but also like Usman Garuba can do a lot of that. Uh, He's really switchable can go out and play in a variety of any pick and roll coverage you want to play. He's only six foot eight, but he has incredible length and is really good at walling up around the basket. But even above shooting, he's really comfortable. Like you could play him in dribble handoffs. You could play him, uh, you know, as a release valve. If the other team puts two on the ball, there's just a lot that you can do. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I feel like, uh, it's funny cause I always, I mean, especially come playoff time, you know, every, everything's switchable or switching. And so like, on one hand, I'm like, well, I want a big that is mobile enough and comfortable on the perimeter. And uh, <laughs> here we are thinking about these unicorns. I want this, 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 and this. But right, uh, and I love rim runners. I think that like I really love like a guy like Rashawn Holmes. I think uh, 
maybe with a little more size, a little more uh, comfort as far as like maybe some post game. But uh, I've always kind of leaned more towards those rim runners, um, guys that move well, that are comfortable. Like I said, you know, switching onto guards on the perimeter. Like uh, that's kind of how I. I mean, that's how I still kind of am. Those are kind of more the qualities I look for uh, from that position. but yeah, just an interesting conversation that I, I feel like uh, come playoff time, like you said, all these different teams have. It's all about matchups, and so trying to figure out, uh, you know, which which guy. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll see Demarcus Cousins next next round after not playing. I mean, it's all about matchups in the playoffs and uh, stuff. To, fun stuff to think about. Yeah, I think that I want. More, more. I think that like it, defensively, I want someone who can protect the rim and space a little bit at least, or uh, or and uh, guard away from the basket a little bit. Like I, I do want someone with at least like Clint Capella level of ability to switch. Like you don't feel great when Clint Capella's out on an island against a guard, but like he can handle the job a little bit, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I at least want that. And then even more than shooting, I want guys who are dexterous with the ball and can kind of do a lot of different things. Uh, I think that that's kind of if um if I'm building a team, those are the skills that I'm placing at the highest priority. Now, that's not to say that, like, if Miles Turner was to come available on the trade market, which like, who knows, right, given the fact that they have both Sabonis and Turner, um, that I wouldn't take Miles Turner over a lesser center, right? I would, because Miles Turner is great, and you can make it work with Miles Turner because he's such a good defender and can shoot. But I think that in a vacuum, those are kind of the skills that I prioritize from the center position now. Yep, yep, nice. All right, Drake, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we will be back with a little bit more on these final three playoff series. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. 
just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory g-a-m-e-t-h-e-o-r-y to claim your account plus with nord's 30-day money-back guarantee you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account nordvpn.com slash game theory guys i can't emphasize enough uh, how much i use nord every day of my life uh Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay. And we're back here uh, at the game theory podcast with Drake. You, you, what series do you want to go to next? Do you want to do Hawk Sixers because they played today? Do you want to do Denver Suns? Do you want to do uh, Bucks Nets because they played yesterday? What are you thinking? Uh, you know, let's, let's talk Philly Atlanta. Okay, I kind of like, uh, like this series. So I was I talking Atlanta winning. I was talking to you on the phone. Uh, what? That was probably a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and yeah. I said to you, I think that Atlanta poses a lot of problems for Philadelphia. And this was before Joel Embiid got hurt. Right. The The reason is mostly because, you know, we just spent a while talking about, like, rim protection and about, um, you know, playing drop coverage and everything and how you can do it. But the problem is that Philly doesn't really do anything else because you can't really do anything else with Joel out on the floor. And then on top of that, I kind of thought that Trey Young was just going to eat in this series. And in the first game, he had 35 and 10, and he just basically ate whenever he wanted to eat. Yeah. I mean, what what did you think watching that game? You know, to me, I, I've been really impressed. I think since the, the switch in coaches, Nate McMillan has, like, transformed Trey's game completely. I think that's kind of my biggest takeaway from the year. Um, and what I mean by that is, obviously, we, Trey's putting up big numbers. He's had an all-star year already. But uh, to me, it's the decision-making, the shot selection. And he just his game seems to have matured significantly. Um, and teammates seem to, like, really enjoy playing with him. And he's making the game easy for guys. Um, and so I think that like Nate has like instilled a defensive minded philosophy. He's, uh, got a, I think he's got great depth on this team. I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, a lot of their young wings, uh, and then the addition of bogey, I think has obviously been a huge plus for them. Um, but I think that they actually match up really well with Philly and yeah, I don't know if they really have an answer for Trey and I don't, they didn't today and I don't know if they will. I, I think that, you know, it's maybe they switch Ben onto him full time or, um, but I just, I, I, Atlanta is so deep to me and, uh, they have a good balance similar to Utah and they seem to be kind of clicking and this second half of the season, they've definitely clicked, uh, as a unit. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like Atlanta's chances. I think that they did a good job neutralizing, uh, MB today and, yeah, I wasn't surprised at all that they won. And uh, it, the one thing that was crazy, that I, did, I don't know if you caught the game, but the very end, I'm like, <laughs> you know, you, you take your eyes off the game for a couple of minutes and all of a sudden this 20-point lead dwindles all the way down and suddenly <laughs> yeah. all these possessions came down to a free throw game at the very end. But uh, they were able to hold on. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'd like this Atlanta team a lot. 
Yeah, I had to uh, I had to catch this as a rewatch because this game happened at 3 a.m. in the morning here in Australia. I am I'm getting used to having to uh, just rewatch games. I'm typically someone who mostly time shifts games and like watches them later so that I can watch them in 50 minutes as opposed to like two and a half hours. But uh, during the playoffs, I watch a lot more live and have gotten used to watching a lot more live. So that was a that was a tough one to miss. I mean, with Atlanta, they kind of just have a lot of the things that you look for in a good playoff roster. They have an elite creator in Trey Young who processes processes the game exceptionally quickly. Uh, He is a three level scorer who is an unbelievable passer. You have. A legit defensive center in Clint Capella, who is great. You have another young, burgeoning star in John Collins. You have a motherfucker of a shot maker in Bogey. Like, there is no circumstance he's on the Atlanta Hawks, I would imagine, if you guys were still working in Sacramento, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think that, uh, yeah, Bogey would be a king for life if we (laughs) were still there. But yeah, pretty amazing. I'm super happy for Bogey to at least have the opportunity to play in the playoffs. Everybody's now he's playing on a national stage and he's like, again, like we talked about with Terrence, man, he's just like such an amazing human uh, and plays best when the lights are on and on the, on the biggest stage. And so, uh, but yeah, I'm with you. Uh in the case of bogey too, like, it's funny. Like I, I mean, this is another thing that I tweeted, like right when the playoffs started, but like, I think people don't recognize Bogdan Bogdanovich's, like history of big moment exploits right uh he is not a guy to like mess around with in the playoffs he will absolutely destroy you if you give him any sort of space and he's a legit creator in the playoffs too he can handle the ball he can run pick and roll this is a guy who was the top scorer at the FIBA world cup in 2019 uh he was the he was a Euro League all decade team member, and that is legit just like it's a season, but then you have uh playoffs and he was absolutely exceptional in the playoffs. He was the Euro League finals top scorer in twenty seventeen. Uh he was a Turkish League Finals MVP in 2017. He was the Serbian League Playoffs MVP in 2014 when he was 22 years old. Like this dude just there's never there's never gonna be a moment that's too big for him, I feel like totally i I just did a such a good player and then uh on top of it i think it's worth noting too that atlanta shot well today right they got three for four from three from john collins they got three for six from herder they got two for four from lou will uh bogey made five you know solomon hill's really the only guy that didn't shoot well today they're probably not going to shoot 20 of 47 from three every night you're probably not going to make 43 percent every single night and then on the other side Philadelphia goes 10 of 29 from three. They shoot 35. So like they weren't like wildly off of like a yearly percentage. But when you're talking a four point game and look, I know Atlanta uh, led by a lot for a majority of this game. Like you're up 20 points at halftime and you're up 15 going into the fourth quarter. Like, look, it's Philly had to like scratch and claw late, late in this game to make it a four point game. But it does feel like Atlanta's probably due for some shooting regression. It feels like Philadelphia will have better shooting nights. 
I'm I'm just not sure like what to make of Philadelphia's like perimeter rotation. Like Shake Milton played one minute today. Uh, Maxi played more minutes than like George Hill and Furkan Korkmaz. Which I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I just kind of wonder if they're in a a similar circumstance with the Clippers were early in da- in the Dallas series where in a hyper competitive situation because that first series they played was just not hyper competitive let's call it what it is right yep, yep. in a in a hyper competitive situation i'm not sure they know who they're going to be able to rely on for those like 25 minutes off the bench that they need from their backcourt on a night to night basis yeah, I agree. And when, when we start talking about the depth of Atlanta and I look at their wings and their guard play uh, compared to Philly's, I just don't know if Philly has the firepower, the shot-making ability that Atlanta does. Uh, I mean, Thibel actually shot the ball well today. And on the flip side, I wouldn't actually uh, – I mean, that's kind of uncharacteristic of him. You're, you're looking at him more on the defensive end. But, um, yeah, I, I just – the lack of shooting and I guess depth from Philly I think kind of worries me in this series so I do want to ask you though I'm kind of curious where are you at with John Collins I'm a big John Collins guy I've always been a pretty big fan the the reason is that he gets better at something every year like entering the league he was like energy motor rebounding guy Yeah. Wake used him a lot in pick and roll but he wasn't like versatile pick and roll threat that he is now you know third year he goes gets the jump shot uh and becomes like an actual versatile pick and roll threat where you can pick and pop him you can pick and pop to where he can attack a closeout and finish you can just roll him all the way to the basket and finish and that combination of skills now to where he can catch and shoot and knock down shots from three allows him to play on the court with clint capella which is huge for them because it gives them that little bit of added uh ability on defense and added size on defense and then on top of it he got a lot better on defense over the course of the last year and a half like john collins i'm I'm not sitting here saying he's like an all nba defender he's not even close to that level but he's not a liability anymore like when he entered the league and even in his second season he was a genuine defensive liability he is an average defender in the NBA now and just getting to average, I think is such an enormous thing for him because it allows him to stay on the floor in multiple different situations while maintaining and getting the value out of his offensive ability. Totally. Yeah. I'm super, I'm a huge John Collins fan. I'm, I'm curious to see, I would imagine, uh, Atlanta matches anything that another team would throw at him, but I feel like, uh, yeah, he kind of came in the league as this like super athletic kind of rim running uh, lob threat big, and like you said, he just worked his butt off on both ends. But the skill set has just like really evolved nicely for him, and uh, all of that. And then he also plays with like this great toughness and like nastiness that I think kind of you know between him and uh, Trey, and they got like some young swagger on the team, and uh, yeah. And then some of these vicious dunks that he had, like especially the one he had late, the lob, I'm like, my goodness, like he's really starting to put his game together nicely. And uh, yeah, I think he's quietly had like a most improved player type of year um, on the low. So yeah, no one, no one will give him that award because of like, I think honestly, his numbers probably dropped a little bit this year from what they were last year, but he's a much better player now 
than he was last year. And it's huge for them. Like, I'm glad you brought up that toughness aspect with Atlanta. They really do have that. They're a young team. They're inexperienced. This is their first playoff run. But, like, Trey Young is not going to be afraid of of any moment whatsoever. John Collins, that dude is tough he's physical i don't think he's afraid of the moment we know bogey's not afraid of the moment herder i think has been unbelievable in the playoffs like he was unbelievable again today he went six of nine from the field made three threes had four assists like he's actually also been really good defensively did did you kind of see him as being useful defensively when he entered the league because i I certainly did not you know i did because he has a he has positional size and B, he's got this, like, he's a sneaky athlete. <clears throat> and so for him to, uh, I, I, re- I really wasn't too concerned. He moved well laterally, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, white guys are going to get targeted in the league. Um, but I wasn't too concerned because, I mean, he'll also catch you sleeping at the rim and, you know, finish one, uh, finish a nasty dunk over you in the lane, like kind of out of nowhere. And so uh, I wasn't too worried about, like, the <clears throat> athletic, or sorry, the uh, defensive liability. Um, and I, just, I was a huge fan of his coming out of the draft. Uh, some of our, I mean, it's funny because that that year in the draft room, uh, I was so high on Trey. I, I had I was like obsessed with him. And then uh, and every <laughs> every year in the drafts, I get obsessed with random players. But Trey was one where I'm like, my goodness. And I, it was I was like the polarizing uh, one in the room because we had a lot of people that were anti Trey, like super pro Colin Sexton at the time. And those were some of the conversations we would have in that lottery. Um, both great young players, but it's just kind of like, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but on the draft night, everybody's like, Drake's making the calls in Atlanta. Like, oh my gosh, because some people thought that Kevin Herter should have <laughs> gone back to school. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, this kid is a lottery guy. And sure enough, he shoots the crap out of it at the combine, and his stock kind of slowly starts rising. And I, I just loved his – he kind of has that, like uh, – secondary third ball like playmaker ability but also is like a knockdown shooter and can play off the ball he's got great feel um so yeah i'm i mean again i'm a big fan of this young atlanta team like uh they kind of have that swagger that we had briefly in that 2018 year maybe it was with when we won 39 games and we were playing with shump and you had this like young core that was kind of exciting and kind of had their own swagger to them and i i see that with this atlanta team and but they also have a balance of like veteran leadership and toughness and you know some of those role players like solomon hill and then tony snell and uh even gallo i mean guys that have been there before and obviously bogey yeah. and so it's like this unique balance which i think is is cool they're, they're a fun team to watch i've liked watching them all year yeah i think schlank's done a really good job of building this team uh, he, he's done a really just phenomenal job of rounding out what they needed in terms of talent in terms of uh, uh just in terms of uh, like comfort like the, even like going to get lou williams like lou williams has not been awesome for atlanta but they made the right move getting him for rondo i think just like kind of getting rondo off the team a little like i'm not saying like rondo was terrible like rondo was terrible for them this year but like it's not like he was like a culture you know asshole problem it was just it wasn't working and they decided to do something different and lou williams is like renowned as one of the great guys like around the league so it's just like this really nice mix of they like to be around each other it seems like they have a really good skill mix on the floor and then they have trey young and john collins and all these guys that aren't going to be afraid of the moment and they're talented. Like, it's just a really fun group. I really enjoy the Atlanta Hawks a lot. Um, 
I don't think we're writing off Philadelphia here, right, though? Like, Joel Embiid obviously is hurt, but, I mean, they still have Ben Simmons, who, I mean, frankly, Atlanta's only way of stopping him today was to send him to the foul line. And then Joel probably will continue to dominate inside i would think like he was ridiculous today like they had no answer for him you know they fouled him a ton and you know he, he had no problem scoring at the basket uh tobias harris and danny green maybe will shoot better at some point like i'm still i still think this is a seven game series like i don't think this is a this is not going to be a walkover either way yeah that's a good point i mean i am very curious to see uh <laughs> yeah, because Atlanta, I mean, it's almost as if they just, Philly just ran out of time because you could sense the momentum shifting late. And, you know, fortunately they were able to close it out. And, but, you know, I'm curious to see what adjustments Doc makes and, uh, yeah, how they plan on attacking this next game. I think that your idea earlier of playing Ben almost full-time on Trey is the right call. I don't think you can play Thibel on him because Thibel will just, like, get in foul trouble like immediately on Trey I think because Trey is so good at Thibel is very over aggressive and Trey is so good at like feeding off of that over aggressiveness and I don't think Danny Green is quite quick enough anymore to deal with them like you obviously show Trey different looks and defense isn't like a one-man game but uh, I think you go Ben on him don't you yeah, hundred percent. I think that you try and throw some size at him, and Trey's going to get to his spots. He's going to pull from wherever, and uh, he, he's a he's got he's a nightmare to guard because he literally uh, he has that Steph Curry, Dame Lillard range where you have to honor him as soon as he passes half court, um, and then once he gets downhill or in a pick and roll, he's he's smart enough and has going to feel to kind of locate or break break you guys or break the defense down. So I think that maybe putting some size on him and some length and kind of muscling him up a little bit and try and get physical with him might be the move for for philly moving forward yeah uh, i'm excited to see the rest of that series let's go to uh let's go to let's go to the bucks and nets because they've actually played already did it surprise you that the bucks couldn't get it done in game one when brooklyn lost james harden within the first minute <laughs> It didn't surprise me. Uh, it's funny because my buddy, my boy, was joking with me. He's like, "Dude, did you hear James Harden went out? Uh, what are they? What are they going to do?" I'm like, "Oh my gosh, who are they going to? Who will they call on next? They're, they have nobody." It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe KD steps up, or maybe Kyrie just <laughs> takes more shots. It's like they're so stacked, and yeah. and they have like pretty solid role players and, and great depth. It's like, I mean, and to be honest, they played. Not, those three together did not play a ton this year, and so I feel like uh, they're kind of used not not used to it. But I mean, this isn't anything new for them, and so I feel like uh, I wasn't too surprised. I think that like my problem with the Bucks, and this is where a guy like Bogey would really help them. I think is just the lack of shooting, and they really didn't they didn't shoot the ball well on Saturday, and I feel like uh, it just puts so much more pressure on on a Giannis and a Drew to like try and make something happen when your role players aren't able to make shots and especially with the, I, I feel like they the Bucks to me have to play like a perfect series to uh, beat Brooklyn I, are you as high on Brooklyn I feel like I have Brooklyn coming out of the east personally but I mean what, what are your thoughts I mean look I, I had I, I have a title future on Milwaukee um, at nine to one but I, I think I did say on the podcast uh, 
before the playoffs that I forget who I recorded with to preview the playoffs, but I said I thought Brooklyn and the Clippers, if I remember correctly, were my two picks. Uh, yeah. And the Clippers almost like catastrophically made me look exceptionally dumb. We're still in it though. Don't worry. I'm 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 sure I will make myself look dumb at some other point, but that one still does not yet look that dumb. Um yeah, I just think no one's going to beat Brooklyn. Uh I thought that the Bucks had an exceptionally interesting matchup on them because Brook like this is the series by far I'm looking forward to most maybe of the playoffs. Like just trying to think of like the different series is that could like come together this one is most interesting to me especially for brooklyn because they don't have anyone to deal with Giannis. like they they just have no one that is really going to be able to handle him even in game one i mean he goes for 34 in 35 minutes and has like 11 rebounds and four assists and you know milwaukee kept going back to the well with that Giannis. you know almost like four two pick and roll right uh that stuff I don't think Brooklyn has an answer for that. Now, the the problem is that without Dante DiVincenzo, and this is going to sound really fucking dumb, I'm aware of that, because, you know, I'm going to say for a second here that, like, with Dante, a game would be different. But I actually think that it would be because they the Bucks just don't have anyone to kind of eat up minutes in the backcourt right now that isn't just like target practice for Brooklyn, one of Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving to try and get a matchup with, right? Like every time Pat Connaughton's out there, they're trying to hunt Connaughton. Every time Bryn Forbes is out there, they're trying to hunt Bryn Forbes. And with Dante, that's not a problem. And then with like Dante, you don't want Dante on Kevin Durant, but if it's Dante on Kyrie, you're not like, oh my God, we're fucking dead in the water here. Uh, it's just a normal amount of dead in the water when Kyrie has the ball, right? Uh, it's not like Bryn Forbes is guarding Kyrie. We're about to, you know, give up three points here with ease. So I think that the Dante loss is actually really important in this series. And then on top of it, I mean, if Brooklyn gets the kind of play that it gets from its role that it got from its role players in game one, like if it gets 18 and 14 from Blake Griffin and gets 19 points from Joe Harris, where he goes five of nine from three. And then, you know, Mike James scores 12 points and Nick Claxton plays unbelievable defensively. There is not a fucking team in the NBA beating this team. Like it's just not going to happen with or without James. <laughs> yeah, um, with or without James. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I want to see more of what this series looks like when Brooklyn doesn't have all of this offensive firepower from guys that it shouldn't expect to have offensive firepower from on a regular basis, like Blake Claxton and Mike James. Sure. Yeah, and to be fair, like. Chris Middleton probably doesn't go six for 23. And yep. uh, some of these role players, I mean, Drew didn't play great. Uh, Bryn Forbes didn't play great. You're right. Uh, and they only lost by eight. Uh, so it, this this will still be an interesting series. I just, at times when I'm watching Brooklyn, I'm like, this is like a video game. This is, I can't believe this roster is put together. And Blake Griffin suddenly has bounce again. And uh, yeah, like they're getting quality minutes out of, 
everyone. Alizé Johnson has had moments during this year. Where I'm like, my goodness, these guys are just firing on all cylinders. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I, I just the role players from Milwaukee. Uh, I don't know if if they're not playing their A game. I feel like it's going to be really difficult for them. Well, and like, look, another part of this is, and like, I don't mean to just like make this shit on Jeff Teagower, right? But like. I mean, Jeff Teague can't play another minute in this series. Like, I know that Mike Budenholzer, like, it's just like a habit for Mike to look down the bench from his time in Atlanta and now time in Milwaukee and just be like, oh, yeah, I can go trust Jeff and he'll be fine. He can't do it. Like, uh, unfortunately, like, you just can't play Jeff in the series because he is absolutely a target for everyone when he's out there. Um, Yeah they're going to switch him onto whoever they can every single time. And then offensively, he's just not good enough anymore. Like he doesn't have that same speed. He's not quite as good of a shooter as he used to be. Like there's just not really a way to make that work. I think so they're almost resigned to playing big a lot of the time where like, I mean, like I thought that my, my ideal for them was being able to play Giannis at the five and then PJ Tucker at the four and then go like Middleton, Drew Holiday and Dante. I mean, like, I, I think that like I, I'd be like trying to dust off like Elijah Bryant or something like see if yeah, seriously, I'm looking at this bench now. I'm like, shoot, maybe give Jordan Nomura or like somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Too, I like, like I, a shot. Yeah, I think it'd be Bryant for me because, like, you know, he's been in Euro League, has experienced big moments before. Like, I, I think that that'd be my my play. Try to give him Jeff Teague's minutes, but I, I don't know, man. Like yeah. this, I, I thought this was going to be like a hard fought seven game series, and I don't want to overreact to one game because that's just like a fucking disaster idea right like don't overreact to one game in a seven game series but that milwaukee not being able to get that game after james harden goes out after one minute like that's that's tough for me because there there you have to imagine that like for brooklyn that was a that was a real downer moment and for Milwaukee to not even be able to take advantage of that at all. It's hard. It's hard for me to get past that, like, you know, that mental block in my brain. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, when you look at this Brooklyn team, like, what what do you think the best way to, like, even try and stop them is? Like, do you switch? Do you just try and play, like, flat ball screen to try and recover? Like, I, I, don't, I don't really know what you do against them, especially when Harden's in, but, like, even when it's just Katie and Kyrie and then Joe Harris in a corner, it's hard. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think you, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't, this isn't even, I may not, not even make sense, but I feel like you just got to continue to make these guys defend, like put, I, I don't know if there's an answer to stop them offensively. Uh, they just have such great talented individual guys that can go get a bucket whenever they want. Um, but maybe on the offensive, like they just sp- spread them out, keep them moving, uh, try and make it, <laughs> try and make them defend as much as possible. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. To, I guess is the uh, <laughs> my short answer. I like that, I, I think that you ha- you're on the right track in terms of like making them defend. Like maybe it's make them defend and then make shots on your end so that they can't get out in transition. Right? Like, if they're out in transition and scoring, you know, a certain number of points in transition, you're probably screwed as it is. But, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe they do, maybe it just has to be a track meet, 
right? Like maybe Milwaukee just has to knock down threes and make it work. This is why I, I personally would love to see a Brooklyn Utah series because Utah's now that I'm thinking about it, they're kind of that team that can make them put them in enough action to like start thinking and like you know maybe there's maybe there's mishaps on defense or they have to like the, Utah to me just kind of plays what the defense gives them and so I feel like they might be that one unique team that is like deep enough matches up decently I don't know how Gobert fits in that series right now off the top of my head but kind of like that style like the Golden State like where just people are constantly moving cutting people are making the right read of smart players are kind of stretching them out um that kind of would be interesting for me uh to see honestly like do we think it i mean atlanta's just not talented enough i don't think yet but like atlanta's like mix of like their their matchups are not disastrous like against philly like i feel like Philly has the best shot to defend them because Philly just has more defensive talent than anyone like in the league, basically, because they have all of Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Matisse Thibel, Danny Green, you know, down the lineup. But like, I don't know. Like, I feel like maybe like the the mix of offense and defense, but Atlanta's just not talented enough, probably, right? I don't know. I actually really like Atlanta. I'm not saying that they'll, I mean, I don't even know if they'll get out of this this round. I think they will, but I would love to see an Atlanta-Brooklyn series now that you, you mentioned it. I feel like, again, they have they have that youth in them that might make them, it gives them that false, uh, false confidence, but they, you know, they start thinking, shoot, we can beat anybody. Right. And they have a star in Trey, and they have like a, again, we've talked about it, but the balance of that team, the depth of that team, the shooting that they have, uh, I, that would be a really interesting matchup. I, I, I don't, obviously, Brooklyn is the superior talent, but uh, that would be something that I, again, would like to see. And I think that they they would put some. You're right; they match up really well, and they put some pressure on Brooklyn for sure. For Milwaukee to get back into this series, I, I would say, like first and foremost, it's hard because, like, I just want to say play better for a lot of this, but like. Chris Middleton just has to play better. He has to shoot better than six of 23 from the field. Like Drew Holiday has to shoot better than seven of 19 and two of seven from three. If Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton go two of 12 from three and Chris Middleton misses an additional, uh, you know, 12 shots, Milwaukee just can't win these, these games. Like they just can't. So uh, like it, the adjustments, I guess, are don't play Jeff Teague and play better. But like that, that just feels, it feels like silly. Like that's not analysis. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I mean, yeah, make more shots. <laughs> but I mean, in the reality, to me, like the, the one thing about the playoffs, two things that I think are actually interesting is that we talked about like the switching thing. Like everybody will just attack Jeff Teague as soon as he's on the court. Like that seems to be the MO come playoff time. It's like, uh, I'm going to put my best player and switch him on to your worst defender and try and create that switch and then just play. Like, my best player is going to go against yours. And, like, that seems to always be a theme the last couple of years in the playoffs, maybe the last decade. Um, and then, to me, it's the role players. Like, I just love find, uh, finding. But, like, you start seeing, like, certain guys kind of shine in this role and, like, end up contributing to wins. And ultimately, like, those guys are the X factors that put these teams over the line. And so... 
the Pat Connaughton's, the Bryn Forbes, and then yeah, if it's Elijah Bryan or Jordan Wara or PJ Tucker, like the, those guys have to play better for them to have a chance, you know. And so I can go through role players on all these different rosters that I've loved watching in the playoffs because, like, to me, those are kind of the difference makers in these series. Yeah, and like Nick Claxton, for instance, with Brooklyn, right? Like his ability to play all sorts of different defensive coverages. He was all over the place and help in this game. Yeah. Like Nick Claxton was huge for Brooklyn. Like, you know, not as big as Kevin Durant and not as big as Kyrie and Blake Griffin going for 18, but like getting those 14 minutes from Nick Claxton, like getting positive 14 minutes from Nick Claxton versus the dog shit 14 minutes they got from Jeff Teague. Like <laughs> that's, that's the difference, right? Totally. Um, would Mike James be the second best creator on the Dallas Mavericks? Actually, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm such a Mike James is so nasty to me. Like from a he his entire offensive skill set, his pack his offensive package is crazy. Like the finishes, the he makes tough shots. I feel like again, you kind of mentioned Dinwiddie, but certain they need someone that can kind of play on the ball. Uh, and create for themselves, create for someone else outside, like in addition to Luca. But yeah, Mike James, he's so fun to watch. Like so shifty. Uh, he'll hit you with like a Will Chamberlain hook shot from the free throw line, like <laughs> a floater from three. He'll, you know, crazy step backs. He's got the ball on a string. He's, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan. But now you have James Harden out, and <laughs> insert Mike James, who's like a world renowned scorer who can like you just have another stud coming off the bench and oh let me pick this tool now actually i want this yeah. guy to come out here <laughs> take this way okay i got blake griffin but like blake when he's 25 coming back right. to life now i'm like okay the the problem with mike james is mike james thinks he's every bit as good as james harden oh yeah and Kyrie. <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> it's like this is the big i'm i'm in the big three <laughs> yeah this is now my big three <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's good to have that confidence at times, but there will be a moment. Like there was a point in the third quarter of that game where he like, it was either the third or early fourth where like, there was a very clear reversal to Kyrie and Kyrie would have either been able to take a three or would have been able to like attack the closeout and get to a floater or get to a shot at the rim. And he looked off Kyrie. I was like, Oh my God, Mike James <laughs> waves him off. <laughs> like this. takes a look at him and is like, nah, I'm good. I got it. Like guy in front of me. I'm fine. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yep. Uh, let's talk about this last series. Let's talk about uh, Denver and the Suns. I mean, I'm at the point where I, I just refuse to bet against Nikola Jokic like at any point, period. The Suns should win this series. I understand that. Just based off of talent, they are so much better across the perimeter. They can throw Mikael Bridges on Michael Porter and cause him all sorts of problems. Um you know, then you have the backcourt combination of Chris Paul and, uh, you know, obviously Devin Booker, who looks unbelievable in the playoffs. Honestly, if, if we're being real about it, the Suns should win this series in maybe five games. But I think there is one specific problem for Phoenix, and it's that DeAndre Ayton versus Nikola Jokic is not a good matchup for Phoenix. Because Jokic is going to just attack him and try to get him directly into foul trouble every single time, I think. 
And if he does get DeAndre into foul trouble, they have nothing behind him. Like they have Dario Saric playing the five. They have Frank Kaminsky. Like you just DeAndre Ayton is the most important player in the series. I think in like period point blank, Uh, if he can deal with Nikola Jokic and stay on the court for 34 minutes a night, Phoenix will win in five. But if he can't, this becomes a real series in a hurry, and it becomes like a somewhat dangerous one for Phoenix. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I feel like Phoenix. I, I really like Phoenix. I like they've been fun to watch too all year. Um, this like whole Chris Paul experiment is just uh, my respect for Chris has just gone through the roof. I'm such a fan now, and then like <clears throat> to see how his leadership is clearly. Uh, done wonders for this young Suns team but I feel like uh, they also just play well as a team they kind of have again a great balance good depth good role players um, but yeah I don't know how they I mean I was just thinking this too like yeah if Aiton gets in foul trouble or Jokic is it's crazy like he I didn't watch a ton of Denver this year and, and you start watching the playoffs and you see his numbers which just like man you forget how good and like special he really is he's like so skilled so uh it's so rare that you can you know obviously throw it in anytime you can get a a guy can get a bucket at will i feel like especially down the stretch like some of those like that portland game that went to triple overtime like he's just so special in those moments like watching i know i'm getting sidetracked but like he's a stud and so i'm curious like do you think they end up like if Aiton does go down i'm assuming they're not going to call frank the tank off the bench i would imagine they go like a Jake, do you put a Jay Crowder on him? Like that's kind of the beauty of Jay Crowder to me is, I mean, he would kind of switch from LeBron to AD. You kind of he's like that utility, strong, physical presence. But like, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what what they do if if Aiden does get in foul trouble. I, I mean, they might put Jay on him because that honestly, like you, that might be their best move. Like you might yeah. be right. Jokic will destroy him. He's just too yeah. small. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Jay's like six foot five with like a six eleven wingspan. Like Jokic is yeah. just gonna shoot over the top of him. And frankly, like Jay is really strong. Jokic is stronger and will just like bury him on the block. So, yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. he's doing to Covington. And Covington's like yeah. six, six eight, eight six yeah. nine, yeah, like so big like, guy. Um, yeah, I, I do think that Phoenix wins. I, I feel like again to me the the depth and then obviously a star and, and book who's playing at an incredibly high level but uh to me like phoenix's role players like these young guys like first of all campaign like those guys he, him alone who's like kind of revitalized his career and it's played like a major role off the bench for them has been pretty got, cool to watch i got nothing on that one <laughs> like, what do you mean how, how did how did that happen <laughs> I, I don't know right i'm like I mean, there was times where, yeah, you, you needed. He was like on a ten-day radar, and now he he did sign a ten-day actually, right? And they signed him the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah, uh, super cool. I love and like he kind of plays with some swagger and some confidence, and kind of clearly has a, a clear understanding of who he is now as a player. And he's, uh, <laughs> he's it's crazy seeing it, again his uh, resurgence. Um, but then like you have the young wing. I love Mikael Bridges. I love Cam Johnson. Like two quality wing defenders and shot makers um so yeah i mean i i think phoenix pulls this off uh and yeah it's five games like you but uh i mean i mean sorry sam all right drake do you have any other uh strong 
takes on this Phoenix series. I, I feel like I feel like once we get to the point where Campaign is the third leading scorer on the Phoenix Suns in the playoffs, that uh, that uh, that that might be all we need. I mean, I, I love seeing Austin Rivers blow it up a little bit for Denver. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. continues to be you know as awesome as what people thought he would be coming out for Denver as well. But it, it it's just tough when you don't have the firepower in the backcourt. I feel like. Totally agree. All right, let's see here. How do we? Do you want to finish with like five minutes of draft stuff? I'll, I'll just ask you: uh, Who is who's the guy that in watching some tape this year? Who's the guy that's like stood out to you as like way underneath the radar? Way underneath the radar. Um, or not even way underneath, but just like the guy that you think is way better than where people have him. Oh, interesting. Um, I was going to talk about Josh Giddy. Uh, and I actually have him like, as I've very quickly put together a board over the last couple of weeks and just kind of been, uh, getting into this year's draft. I feel like Giddy to me is like a top, I have him like at seven, maybe six or seven in mm-hmm. this class. I, I don't know where you, you have him actually pretty high too in your board. I just saw you have him at like 10 or 10 or 11. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. So I'm pretty high. Yeah. I think he's a, a pretty special. I mean, what are your thoughts on this draft? Actually, like high level, because I, I know we've talked about this in a couple past conversations, but I feel like, uh, you know, I've been hearing about this draft class for like the last two years. And I think that like the interesting part is you had a lot of kids with some like impressive high school resumes that came in and kind of underperformed at the college level. Um, and so I'm curious, like, do you obviously to me, the top five, you have like a couple of studs that can potentially be a like, starter, all-star level caliber players um but i i did think that like i thought that there would be a couple more studs than that um do you think it's a deep draft do you think it's a strong draft it's a great question i think it's a great draft at the top i think those top four guys are just like very real i think it is a poor draft in that like six to twenty range and then from like maybe 25 to 50, I feel like there are some flyers that I really like. Like I, I really am kind of interested in like Bones Highland. I'm really interested in Miles um, McBride. Like I, I think Miles McBride is like, it, like Deuce is a first round pick to me. Um, having really gone through his tape this weekend, particularly, I was like kind of blown away a little bit. Like, I think I would take wow. him. I, I think I would take him over Sharif Cooper, to be honest, because I, wow. uh, you know, he played in that like just terrible West Virginia system for the first half of the year. And then you look in the second half of the year uh, when they played a little bit more spread out after Oscar Shibwe transferred and everything. I mean, he averaged like 16 and six assists a game and like was throwing some very real high level looks based off of what the defense was like giving him. So I, I was not anticipating seeing him as like a top 25 guy but that's kind of where i'm at with him now i mean where, where are you at like is there someone like that for you now where like you feel like oh wow they're like way um people may not be thinking about them enough um uh, you know what to be honest with you my typically my wheelhouse is in that like 30 to 100 range and with my new job and uh you know can you hear me yeah oh shoot sorry about that it went completely black i'm sorry about that man you're good okay um 
Gosh, what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, just restart. I'll um I'll be able to edit this. This is easy. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, typically my wheelhouse is kind of in that thirty to one hundred range, like where I'm coming from as far as like G League, you know, uh, executive. Um, and I love that area because like the two ways, the exhibit ten guys, those those are like my favorite uh, players to find. But to be honest with you, I, just with work and uh, I haven't had the time to really dig into like that back half but I, sh- I off the top of my head like i'm a big Derek alston fan I, I have been for the last years as you know sam and we, I, i'm a sucker for six nine guys that show any <laughs> type of ball skills and versatility the Jaden mcdaniels of the world but um yeah I, I don't have an answer for you yet but i will let's let's have another conversation here in the next couple of weeks and i promise you i will have uh the answer for you but guys that like kind of like austin reeves is kind of interesting to me um I don't know. I'm kind of curious about this, like, and again, I haven't done the intel or the as, as much research on some of these guys as I, I need to uh, before the draft. But that, like, like you talked about, six to twenty range or even six to thirty, like some of these guys that you know, the Brandon Boston's, the Josh Christophers, the Zaire Williams, like some of those guys that uh, were initially supposed to be lottery guys. I wonder if there's if that's where the value is in this draft. If you think that if you're a believer that that like lack of success in their freshman year was temporary uh and you would bet on it long term or like the development eventually happening i I don't know maybe maybe that is the sweet spot of this year's draft but uh that's just some of the things i'm I'm trying to think of now well (laughs) i I I didn't answer your question but i apologize (laughs) (laughs) well like with zaire was it you i was talking to i can't remember yeah you think so where it was like you just kind of brought up like he's never been good oh no that wasn't me but uh, okay, I've talked about Zaire a little bit. Yeah, I was talking to someone and they they brought up the fact like Zaire has just never been like great. You know, like he's never statistically in terms of production been as good as what you would think based off of his reputation, right? But when when I, when I go back and watch his tape, I'm I kind of love the way that even though it was not great this year and he was very inefficient and he struggled at times like i kind of thought this is like nba level tape just in terms of the way he gets to step back the way that you can see like the contact balance is just off right now because he's not strong enough like as he gets stronger you can see how he's going to like really improve i think i would take zaire like like zaire's like pretty close to the lottery for me like i, I get it that it's that, that's probably like a hot take given how like poor his season went. But I think I would still take him pretty close to the lottery at this point. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, again, it's it's hard to find six, eight. I mean, to me, positional size is like one of the immediate things that translates. You have to have as I'm personally, as I evaluate these guys, like he has the frame. Yeah. But as you said, if he gets a little stronger, uh, you know, shot cleans up a little bit and becomes a little more efficient as a shooter. I feel like you can't teach some of these qualities that he has. And, yeah. uh, we see guys like him uh, playing roles on, on on several rosters. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you. I think he's a little lower. I can't, I can't tell if, like, this year we're just getting smarter at evaluating. But, like, I feel like positional size is not a problem this year for guys. Like, there aren't many undersized guys that like people are really excited about like Davion Mitchell is maybe a little bit undersized, but he's like 
six two with like a six seven wingspan or something like that and like right, that's not right. a disaster for the point guard position like james book knight is like six five with like a six ten wingspan it's not a disaster uh garuba is undersized for sure um beyond that though like you know jaden springer is maybe a bit undersized for the wing position that he's gonna have to play but like trey murphy is six foot nine um sharif is very small too um yeah. but Trey Murphy is six foot nine. Um, Kessler Edwards is six foot eight. Um, you know, uh, like Jalen Johnson is six foot nine, and uh, Zaire six eight, and Corey Kispert six seven and strong, and yep. Franz Wagner six Giddy's nine, six, and yeah, Giddy six eight. Crystal Duarte is six six. Like these, these dudes just yep. like have. Re- and Scotty Barnes is enormous. Like these dudes have real size for the position they're supposed to play. Is that like? confirmation bias where we're getting smarter so we're moving those guys up a little bit or what but uh, it feels like teams have gotten smarter with like positional size being important for the next level than what it has been in the past yeah totally i mean to me it's like uh positional size uh feel for the game having some type of skill that translates preferably shooting or playmaking obviously in today's game but yeah those are kind of the and then you have to have a baseline of athleticism i think is uh you know the the final one of the final pieces but all those things i feel like you're right as we get and that's kind of like the beauty as we talk about like we go back and do our own redrafts as we've had conversations in the past couple years of like yeah where did where did you hit where did you miss um those are kind of always the fun conversations and what eventually help like perfect our eye i guess so yeah no, totally. Like, uh, I enjoy talking about my misses because, it, like, A, it's fun to, like, make yourself look like a dumbass. And then B, um, uh, like, you don't learn otherwise. Like, if you don't if you don't figure out, hey, how the hell did I have Rudy Gobert as, like, a second-round pick? Like, how did I fuck that up? You know, you're not going to learn. You're not going to figure it out, right? No, 100%. I feel like that's uh, – you have to have some accountability and be <laughs> be able to, like, live with that. I mean, I, literally, we drafted Marvin Bagley. I mean, and I, at the end of the day, like hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the time, like day of the draft, I felt really good about Marvin as a prospect. And I, I guess the biggest takeaway from that draft for me was don't draft for position draft by the best player available. And, uh, listen, like I still think Marvin's going to be a good player. Um, he could probably use a change of scenery, but, uh, you know, these are all things that you have to be willing to, you know, go back and evaluate. And I've had a lot of successful hits on the same. I mean, it's all just a process. And like, uh, you know, really, this is the fun part of scouting to me is like, uh, hey, I was right about this kid. This is why this kid didn't work out or and drafts are comp- so much of drafts are situational, uh, as we've also talked about. And so uh, it's an art, though. It's a beauty. It's what keeps us going every single year. Right. Yeah, like it's like every, everyone tries to make it a bit of a science and it's it's just not. Like every kid is so drastically different from the other like the rest of them. Like a, trying to figure out like it really is like every prospect is like an individual snowflake because like you know, even if you just like think of it from the perspective of like do you know like what a radar chart looks like? Like those charts where like the spark charts like with athletes in the nfl draft is like what i'm thinking of like you know they have like 
95th percentile passing and then like 94th percentile vision and then 20th percentile shooting and 99th percentile ball handling and zero percentile defense. And I just like described like Sharif Cooper, right? But <laughs> like, then you've got like another player who has, you know, X number of skills uh, that plays the same role, plays the, plays a different position. And like, you know, you can kind of think of it that way. Like it's, it's really, um, really challenging like i love the draft like i was talking to um I know, will i say the coach's name um i like i no i won't say the coach's name is conversation well no i won't because it's actually not that bad like um you know mark few i was having a conversation with mark few one time and mark few asked me like like why why do you do what you do like what um like i you know not many people in the media like do like draft evaluation like there are like five of us right um that are like any good at it and mark was just like like why do you why do you do this like why do you like play like the stock market game of evaluating prospects and i was just like you know like it's it's not a game to me like i really but i really do enjoy trying to navigate and evaluate each player and trying to uh trying to figure out like what their career is going to look like i i understand that it's not an exact science i understand that like you know it's not traditional reporting or whatever right but it's uh it is fun to me it i really enjoy the process of trying to get better at this like i feel like at a certain point like you can get better at writing like you can keep you can perfect the craft like you're never going to perfect the craft at writing but to me like this is much more fun and complicated and like you know i'm sure that there are journalists out there that are like you know fuck you you don't get it but like like i feel like this doing this is more interesting to me and more fun and um there are more pieces to it than just like writing stories you know what i mean in reporting totally yeah, it's like yeah, and it's all opinion based, and so no one's right, no one's wrong. Uh, some players end up being better than others, obviously. But uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I feel like, uh, and ultimately, I think we're both just basketball junkies, and so yeah. like having the ability to have these conversations, break players down, try and project them at the next level, try and project them relative to like a team's needs, uh, is like super fun to me. That was like the again like i never felt like i was working a day in my life working for the kings because like you're doing what you love and yep. uh i mean i'm still i have a medical device sales job in the morning that i have in the or at seven o'clock in the morning and like <laughs> i'll sometimes have these like 13 hour days where it's like a complex spine surgery and like the first thing i want to do is come home and like oh what did uh i gotta go watch this evan mobley game or like oh shoot i gotta catch the, the kings are playing at seven it's like right mine just it, this is like a it's therapeutic for me and uh it's just a way that like it's just where my my heart and my passion is as it is with you and you do a great job of this obviously and so it's cool talking to another junkie himself and uh being able to break these guys down yeah it's great it's super fun we'll do this again drake tell the people uh tell the people where they can follow you on uh your variety of social media platforms (laughs) well uh you can find me on twitter i'm at drizzy underscore uu22 um I also am on Instagram at Drizzy Drake 22. And uh, I feel like I'm, as I'm, so I'm also expecting a baby. I know, I think I mentioned this to you before in September. So I'm now going to be the, uh, I don't know if I'll be a a super interesting Instagram follow, but I'll be on there probably post. I'll be that dad 
posting, you know, <laughs> random pics of his son on, you know, new shoes for the boy. Uh, but yeah, those are the two places that you can find me. I'll, I'll occasionally uh, throw some random draft related tweets or stuff I'm doing with Pro Insight on the side. I'll kind of retweet and, and do stuff like that. So it's a fun way for me to kind of stay involved and up to date in the hoops world. What What are the first basketball shoes that you're going to get your child? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Um, my goodness, I feel it's got to be a pair of Kobe's. I feel like I mean, a pair of Kobe's. Uh, okay, a pair of Kobe's. I think is what one of my buddies blessed me with, like some uh, <laughs> some J's. I'm not like a huge shoe head, but uh, I think they're the Jordan ones. <laughs> Seeing mm. these things, they're like four inches long. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny to me. I'm like, I didn't even know these that, that Nike or Jordan made shoes for toddlers like this but i'm getting a kick out of that but yeah i think that as far as the basketball shoe he's going to come out he's going to have a basketball in his hand and we'll, we'll get straight to the gym as soon as uh caitlin pops him out in, in september so as soon as what well, let's, let's say i don't know six months you know maybe maybe a year uh, a year old he can dribble a basketball in <laughs> a year right <laughs> yep oh yeah <laughs> you can tell that i definitely have kids let me tell you I, there's no circumstance <laughs> where i have kids like a year, a year right? sounds like the time that they can start shooting and doing left-handed layups yeah you know like a year like get them one of them small baskets right like it'll be exactly. fine yep, exactly. <laughs> all right this has been the game through podcast please remember rate review subscribe do anything you can to support the show we'll be back uh later this week uh nba combine invites are going out and literally as we speak i know that some have gone out um over the weekend for sure and i think that they're i mean you know this as well as i do there's a second batch that typically goes out right drake uh yep yeah so i think that they're probably uh doing first batch now and second batch um will go out later this week and we'll um you know be able to talk about uh all that stuff in the nba draft with matt penny later on and i'm sure i'll do more playoff stuff but until next time we will talk soon bye